Hey everyone, welcome to Nowhere to Run. I'm here with Richard Bennett. Uh, Richard originally comes from Ireland, where he was trained by Jesuits in his early years. He then received eight years of theological instruction and preparation for the priesthood with the Dominicans, uh, completing his education at a university in Rome in 1964. He spent 21 years as a Roman Catholic parish priest in Trinidad, West Indies. He had, therefore, the best of academic training in things Catholic, plus 21 years of being a parish priest applying Catholic teachings to everyday life. After a serious accident in 1972, in which he nearly lost his life, he began to study seriously the Bible. After 14 years of contrasting Catholicism to biblical truth, he was convicted by the gospel message in 1986. He was then saved by God's grace alone and formally left the Roman Catholic Church and its priesthood. He has founded evangelistic ministry to, the, to Catholics called Berean Beacon, and the website is www.bereanbeacon.org, and that'll be linked in the show notes. Richard, welcome to the program. Yes, uh, good to have you. Good to be here with you, Chris. It sure is. It's 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 going to be a great show. Uh, today we're going to be talking about basic Catholic presuppositions, uh, which for the most part are foundational to how Catholics think. So the first question I have for you is regarding the primacy of Peter. What would you say to a Catholic who believes strongly in this doctrine? Yeah, well, they uh, they hold very strongly to the primacy of Peter, and they go back, of course. They say it's all founded on Matthew 16, where the Lord said he was the rock on which he would build his church. Now, when you study, in fact, Matthew 16, you see that the supremacy or primacy spoken of in that chapter is of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not of any man. It's of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the the concept of the um, Peter having supremacy and this being handed over to the Pope uh, came from a false decree called the decree of the donation of Constantine. And it wasn't until the 8th century that this fraudulent um, document called the, uh, the donation of Constantine was shown to be an absolutely spurious document. Nonetheless, it was part of the Catholic build-up to this idea of a supremacy of a pope going back to the supremacy or primacy of Peter. And to this day, the official teaching of the Catholic Church is this. I'd like to read from the official documentation of the Catholic Church, that is the Catechism, paragraph 881, quotation, the Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. End of quotation. So you see, that's the mind of the Catholic, and it is the official teaching of the Catholic Church. Now, just how absurd it is to base this so-called supremacy of a man going to the Matthew text. Let us read the Matthew text, Matthew 16, from verse 16 to verse 20. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Uh, So we see from this passage that the disciples had a distinct knowledge of who Jesus Christ was, and it is expressed in the passage without hesitation by Peter, the Apostle Peter, on their behalf. He attributes, the Lord attributes what Peter said, where he said, Thou Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He attributes it to a revelation given to him by the Father, that he was the Christ, that is the Anointed One, the Son of the living God, was a revelation, Jesus Christ said, from the Father. It is this revelation, the Lord declared, would be the rock or foundation upon which he built his church. It's interesting that is the way, of course, that the early church for years and years saw the text as it is written. Uh, to hold that Peter himself is the rock is a, a, to, to deliberately pervert the plain sense of the Lord's word. To infer that the church was built upon a mere man and not upon God's revelation of who Jesus Christ is as the son of the living God is to insult Christ's doctrine and to corrupt the written word of God or to attempt to corrupt it. The Holy Spirit confirmed the true meaning of the verse by having it written in Greek. The word for Peter in Greek is Petros. It is masculine in gender and signifies a piece of rock or more literally a stone. In contrast, the word for rock in Greek is tetra. It is feminine in gender, describing bedrock, massive in size and immovable. The church was thus founded on rock, the the tetra in Greek, massive bedrock, not a chip of piece of granite or or chip of a rock or a stone. It was the massive bedrock, the revelation given by the Father. And this is the distinct meaning of the passage. So it is the revelation that the Father gave unto Peter that is the rock on which we build, the church is built. That is the rock, it is the supremacy, it is the primacy of Jesus Christ, it is not any man that is the foundation for the church. 
Now, a word was said personally to Peter, and it's important to see that. It's in verse 19 of the passage we read. Unto thee, that is to Peter personally, was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? It means that it was Peter's role first to preach this revelation of who Jesus Christ is to the Jews. And thus we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter was preaching to the Jews and he said, quotation, God has made the same Jesus, both Lord and Christ. He preached the true meaning of the text. He preached that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He preached it first to the Jews, and then he preached it to the Gentiles, as is recorded in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verses 34 to 44. Thus, the power of the keys was the duty and the privilege that the Apostle Peter had, first of all, to preach who Jesus Christ is to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. And this was the power of the keys. He was the first one to open the kingdom of God to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now, there's obviously no succession to this because there's only one opening uh, and to the Jews and one beginning or opening of the kingdom of God being revealed to the Gentiles, and that was what Peter did. And that that prophetic utterance of Jesus was literally in, in fulfilled as Peter preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So the whole focus of Matthew 16 from verse 16 to 20 is on who Jesus Christ is. He is the son of the living God and his role is the Messiah or the Christ and this is the rock on which the church is built. It is the person of Jesus Christ and not any man and not Peter. So this is a clear, clear explanation of that wonderful text in Matthew 16. Great. Uh, also, those are really insightful points about the keys of the kingdom, uh, you know, being the opening or of the doors to the Gentiles and to uh, the Jews as well. And uh, did the Apostle Peter become the Bishop of Rome, as a lot of Roman Catholics do believe? Is that true in history or in the Bible? Uh Utterly no, <laughs> Chris. The Bible is absolutely silent about the Apostle Peter ever going to Rome. And in fact, the Bible is very clear in the New Testament in where Peter went to. We're told that he went to Samaria, Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea, and Antioch. And they were carefully and meticulously recorded. There is simply no mention ever of him going to Rome. And, of course, that would be essential if you wanted to hold the Catholic position. Um, now, if this were really important that uh, Peter went to Rome, the Holy Spirit would have revealed it. There's no mention of it. And in the letters also that the Apostle Paul wrote and in his 
his own letter to the Romans, there's no mention made of a salutation or greetings to Peter. And Paul mentions name after name of those that he gives salutation to or greetings in the Church of Rome, and Peter is not mentioned. The same Apostle Paul, being at Rome himself during the reign of the Emperor Nero, never once mentions Peter in any of his letters written from Rome to the churches and to Timothy. Mm. Although he does mention many others that were with him in the city of Rome. So just a, a tradition of the Catholic Church, and it is absolutely without any any verification on the pages of, of um, Scripture. And of course, the, the only way that people can go to it is, is some sort of a tradition that does not match fact or reality. It's interesting. It's on the main uh, Catholic apolo apologetic site, it, it said that it was in the Bible because it, Peter signed one letter as from Babylon. And uh, I read a commentator uh, at that that said that Rome claims that, and they said the infamy of that name does not deter, deter them from saying that, <laughs> that, it's, <laughs> that it's them. Yes. But, uh, but of course, Peter would have probably actually been in Babylon uh, ministering to Jews as Babylon still existed at that time. And it probably yes, meant just yes, what it yes. said. Um, okay, did the bishops of Rome, the, the presupposition by the Catholic Church is that the bishops of Rome always thought that they had the authority of the entire church. Is, is that true? No, not at all. The, the, um, the first 250 years, the church at Rome were godly men, and they preached the true gospel. And in actual fact, Paul, in writing to the Roman lauds them and commends them for their faith that he says is known all over the world. And that went on for approximately 250 years. But then there came a watering down and a uh, declining of the gospel message as sacramentalism began to creep in and um, you know, towards the end of the the, the four trenches in the 300s, we have uh, sacramentalism coming in, and the the bishops of Rome begin to look to themselves as being important people because they were bishop of the most important city in the world at the time, and then if if that was the most important city, they must be the most important bishop. So the the bishop of Rome was claiming to be, that was when there was beginning to be one main bishop of Rome. Before that, there were elders and pastors in different areas of the city, uh, and they were just being true to the Bible. But then the change that really made a huge difference to the, um, to the whole question of Rome being important and maybe its bishop having some precedence was in 330 when the uh, city, the seat of the Roman Empire, was moved from Rome to Constantinople. And this really left the bishop of Rome more that he could build up his own importance. And then the contest began, who was the greatest, the bishop of Constantinople or the bishop of Rome? Before that, the contest was between Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Rome. But now uh, it was 
is the Bishop of Rome more important than the Bishop of Constantinople? So there was a, a rivalry between those two um, between those two cities. The the rise of the power and prestige of the the, the papacy then began in the fourth century and was to move steadily more and more, claiming more right to the 13th century with extravagant claims and pretensions. Another emperor in, um, in the mid-8th century did more than anyone else to establish the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, and that was the Emperor Justinian. He did by a formal and legal decree. And um, in the book that I've written, I give the actual words, but let me just summarize it here. He decreed that the Bishop of Rome's edicts and regulations were to be considered as civil law. So um, it was from then the early... The early it was uh, or the early part of the fifth and latter part of the fourth centuries that things started to, you know, to corrupt and Rome, the bishop of Rome, claimed more and more. And but it wasn't, however, till the the thirteenth century, going into the fourteenth century, that we got the final touches to the arrogance of the man who claimed to be bishop of Rome, and this was the infamous. Uh, Pope Boniface VIII. He was stubborn, ambitious, intelligent, vain, and unscrupulous. And he believed literally that the vicar, that the Pope was the vicar of Christ on earth, and that he held extraordinary powers. Anyone opposed him opposed God and must certainly be a wicked person. His most famous statement was the decree called Unum Sanctum. And it's still part of the official teaching of the Roman Church. It's found in the Sources of Catholic Dogma. It's number 469. The book is called Densinger by the author who put it together. And the exact words of what Boniface Eighth said are the following. We declare, say, define, and proclaim to every human creature that they by necessity for salvation, are entirely subject to the Roman pontiff. So for salvation, you must be entirely subject to the Roman pontiff. So a pope declared, and that was trio, um, about 1303, uh, the infamous uh, Unum Sanctum of the um, Pope Boniface VIII. So um, this was a tradition, the pretensions was a tradition basically from the end of the 4th and 5th century up to the 14th century, reaching a zenith under Boniface VIII and continuing right down to the present day. Wow, that's really good information. Thanks for that. Um, can you explain to the audience what a Catholic means by apostolic tradition? Yeah, well, to be fair, let me give an exact definition as the Catholic Church gives of what they mean by apostolic. Uh, 
tradition. This is from paragraph 12 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Quotation. Apostolic tradition is the transmission of the message of Christ brought about from the very beginnings of Christianity by means of preaching, bearing witness, institutions, worship, and inspired writings. The apostles transmitted all they had received from Christ and learned from the Holy Spirit to their successors, the bishops, and through them to all generations until the end of the world. End of quotation from paragraph 12 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, how it is to take place is in the following paragraph, paragraph 13 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So let me read also paragraph 13. Quotation, apostolic tradition occurs in two ways. Through the living transmission of the Word of God, also simply called tradition, and through sacred scripture, which is the same proclamation of salvation in written form. And so for them, uh, apostolic tradition turns out to be simply tradition because they are looking to tradition to be the way in which God has communicated to us the message of Jesus Christ. The concept of tradition transmitting God's word and placing it on the same level as the written word of God is exactly what the Pharisees did in the Lord's own day. And the Lord condemned them because they were corrupting the very basis of truth by stating that their traditions were equal to the written word of God. Jesus Christ said to them, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 13, you are making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered. Now, the Catholic Church is far more emphatic than the Pharisees ever were. They actually go on in the same catechism as I read paragraph 12 and 13 from. In paragraph 80, they say, sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with another. And paragraph 81, and holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Now, this claim that tradition transmits the entirety of the Word of God is absolutely contrary to what the Scripture said and what Jesus Christ said. The transmission of the Word of God is the work of the Holy Spirit, the divine person of the Holy Spirit, and not any tradition of any church. The Apostle Peter said, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's Second Peter chapter 1, verses, verse 20 and 21. It is the Holy Spirit that spoke. It is the Holy Spirit that is the Spirit of truth. He has perfect knowledge of the truth because he is God, one with the Father and the Son. He reveals nothing beyond 
the written word as Jesus Christ himself said in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 15, he shall take of mine and show it unto you. The Holy Spirit transmits in its entirety the word of God. And so to say that tradition, and you don't even define what tradition is, transmits the word of God, is to speak against the Lord Jesus Christ and what the New Testament says. Now, the Catholic Church, nonetheless, having equated sacred tradition with sacred scripture, states that the following words, paragraph 82, as a result, the Catholic Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, both tradition, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Let me read that last statement of paragraph 82 again. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That means you are equally to love and reverence tradition as you are the scripture. This statement is a formal denial of the unique authority of the written word of God. This is like a man saying to his wife that I love you uh, dearly and cherish you, but I also love dearly and cherish the woman across the street. (laughs) Be adulterous. And to say that you have an equal love and reverence for tradition that you do not define as you do the written word of God is to absolutely deny what Jesus Christ said and what the New Testament says and what the Old Testament said. Jesus Christ said, Scripture cannot be broken. That is the absolute, the final word is Scripture. What is written down It cannot be broken. And Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He identified truth with the written word of God. And so this denial by the Catholic Church of the very basis of truth takes away from precious Catholic people the very foundation of truth, the basis of truth, where they will find the gospel message. And I thank God that many of us who were former priests, I have a whole book of 50 former priests called Far From Rome, Near to God, the Testimonies of 50 Former Priests, and of another book of 20 former nuns, The Truth Set Us Free, 20 former nuns tell the stories. And it's wonderful to see these devout Roman Catholic priests and nuns find that there is an absolute authority. As Jesus Christ said, as the apostles said, as the early church knew, and that is the written word of God. Wow. And then to give up this this unholy tradition of equating tradition with the written word of God. Before I ask the next question, if you could give out uh, your website, there's such a treasure of material that you have on your website of video and audio where somebody can learn so much about every subject, not just this one. Uh, can you tell people how to get a hold of you or, or how to how to find all that? Yeah, if um, just go, it's BereanBeacon.org, uh, B-E-R-E-A-N, 
B-E-A-C-O-N, like lightbreanbeacon.org. Or if you don't remember that, just put Richard Bennett's former uh, Catholic priest into a search engine and you'll find it easily. Very good. I was actually just watching a video that you did about the Vicar of Christ and saying that the true Vicar of Christ was the Holy Spirit. It was a really powerful presentation. Um, the next question is, many Catholics believe that St. Polycarp or, and St. Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus were these you know, pristine examples of the Catholic faith or, or that they believed the, the principles of the Catholic faith. Um, and that these men held to the traditions as well as the Bible. Is that historically correct from the writings? It is not correct. And we have, we have books that give the exact words and teachings of these wonderful men, you know, who live very early on in the church. And I'd like to read um, just exactly, for example, what Polycarp himself said. And I'm, I'm quoting from a book by George Stanley Faber, an academic book called The Primitive Doctrine of Justification Investigated. Polycarp himself, who was born about the year 69 and died as a martyr in about the year um, 155. Actually, I I went to the actual place where he had uh, been martyred. And he said the following words. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you believe, knowing that through grace ye are saved, not from works, but by the will of God, through Jesus Christ. That was on page 87 of the book I quoted, where he testifies being saved by grace, of Jesus Christ, and of course that is nothing like Catholic teaching, that is the exact biblical teaching. Clement of Rome, he died about the year of 100, and he wrote also about being justified by faith. His exact words, quotation, therefore we also being called through God's will in Jesus Christ are not justified through ourselves, either through our own wisdom or understanding or piety, but through faith. And that was page 80 of the book that I mentioned. Justin Martyr, who was born about the year 100 and died in 165, wrote about being righteous before God on account of faith. His exact words were the following. It was not by reason of circumcision that Abraham was testified of God to be righteous, but on account of faith. For before he was circumcised, it was said of him, Abraham believed in God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That was page 89 of um, Faber's book, Primitive Doctrine of Justification Investigated. Irenaeus who died about the year 190, or maybe as late as 202, he clearly explained the Apostle Paul's message in Romans, chapter 2. Irenaeus wrote the following, quotation, When Christ came, 
he accomplished all things and still in the church continues to accomplish the New Testament foretold by the law even to consummation. And also the Apostle Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, but now without the law, the righteousness of God is manifested, being testified of by the law and the prophets, for the just shall live by faith. But that the just shall live by faith had been foretold by the prophets. And that was, again, Faber's book and was page 94. Hmm. Wow, that, that's that's uh, amazing. It's it's really interesting, as you pointed out, that these were really great men. To uh, I have been reading a little bit of them in context, and I've been been surprised about how you know how faithful and and they were. I mean, it's, it's been an eye opener for me. Um, what does the early church um, uh, and such as these the, the early church fathers say on the topic of tradition? From the very beginning of the post-apostolic age, that's the time after the apostles, there were men known as apostolic fathers, such as Ignatius, the same Polycarp that we mentioned, Clement, the Didache, which is really a coming together of writings of early believers, and Barnabas. And in all of these, there is an exclusive appeal to scriptures as the ultimate authority. In the writings of the apologists, such as Justin Martyr and Athenagoras, the same thing is found. And so the, in these post-apostolic men of God who wrote and whose writings we still have, there is no appeal to anything else except the written Word of God. There's no extra-biblical tradition separate or independent from the written Word of God. So this is very clear, and we have these um, writings, and it's great that online you can get many of these writings and see for yourself just what these people said. Um, There was a beginning of mentioning of apostolic tradition when it came to Irenaeus, who we talked about already, and Tertullian, who is quite well known in the early church as well. That is to the from the mid to the late second century, a concept of apostolic tradition handed down in the church in oral form is first mentioned. The word tradition uh, in context there means simply teaching. And Irenaeus and Tertullian are emphatic that the teachings of the bishops given orally were rooted in Scripture and could be proven by the Scriptures. Both men actually give the doctrinal content of apostolic tradition as was orally preached in the churches. And it can be quite clearly seen that all the doctrine was derived from Scripture. There was no doctrine referred to as apostolic tradition that could not be found in Scripture. In other words, apostolic tradition as defined by Irenaeus and Tertullian were simply the teachings of Scripture. It was Irenaeus who was quite well known to have said when the apostles first preached orally, their teaching was later committed to writing. 
and the scriptures since that day have become the pillar and ground of truth. So even when apostolic tradition was mentioned, it was emphatically just going back to the written word of God, the scriptures. I guess we have dealt with some basic Catholic presuppositions which have brought to light much biblical and historical truth. What would you say to any Catholics that are listening? Is there anything, any final word you would give to them? My final word is, dear Catholic person, have you faced the biggest question of all? And that question is, how can we be right before the All-Holy God? Because we are all born with a sin nature and we're anything but perfect. And in fact, the Old and New Testament tells us that we are spiritually dead. Adam's sin brought death. That's recorded in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. The prophet Ezekiel says, The soul that sins, it shall die. And the Apostle Paul said, The wages of sin is death. So if we have a sin nature and we're spiritually dead, what are we to do? And I think that is a very, very important, and it is the biggest question, what are we to do? We are to recognize that we are sinners and unrighteous. As it says in Isaiah 64, uh, we are all an unclean thing, and our righteousness are as filthy rags. We're to recognize, and it's because we recognize that we're spiritually dead, and there's nothing we can do of ourselves, that we look on to the one who was perfect before God, who lived a perfect life, fulfilled the whole law, and died in the place of sinners. And so we recognize that we are sinners, and we admit that our sin separates us from God, and we look unto Christ Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We acknowledge our need for him as a substitute. He took the death penalty for us sinners upon himself. In the words of the Apostle Peter, who himself bare our sins in his body on the tree. You must believe that you have a righteous substitute, that somebody died in your place. And as you look unto him, and as you turn to God for his grace, he gives you the grace to trust on Christ and Christ alone. It is no church that saves. It is the person of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice. As Jesus Christ summarized it all, he put it in a nutshell. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. He was talking about himself. It is God's work. It's all of grace. But the responsibility is yours, that you believe on him whom he, whom God has sent. It is a commandment of God that we trust on Christ and Christ alone. And so I say to you, look unto Christ. Cry out to God, look to God for that grace. It is his work. 
and he is gracious to give you the grace. And as you trust on him, you know that you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, convicted of your sins, forgiven of your sins, set free from your sins, and that you have everlasting life. You taste already deeply of the joy that will be ours in heaven to the full. You have everlasting life as you know the Father and the Son and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is the record as the Apostle John summarized it so clearly that he has given us eternal life and this life is in the Son. And having received the gift of everlasting life, give praise and thanks to God for all eternity. I get emails from precious Catholics who have trusted in Christ alone and, you know, then they usually are struggling from what to do to witness to the mother or the father or this or that in the family but they know and they are on fire with the love of God to reach out to others. So when you are saved, you just with a joy reach out to others and you give thanks and praise unto God. And if you want to contact me, as uh, I said already, you can go to the webpage, bereanbeacon.org, B-E-R-E-A-N-B-E-A-C-O-N.org, and you can... um, just email me from there and I will reply. So it is just wonderful to know that God is faithful and that he saves us from the greatest difficulty of all, the difficulty and the huge, huge question, how can we be right before the all-holy God? We can because of what Christ Jesus did, his finished work, and as we trust on him, we have everlasting life and we give praise and glory and worship unto him now and forevermore. If people would like to hear your testimony, it's really amazing and they can check it out on your website, bereanbeacon.org and it's in many different formats. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go here is I know that you have a lot of different projects going on and things that you're passionate about. For example, the emergent church movement and things like that. Two two part question: Is there anything that you're uh, currently working on right now, or projects that really um, things that you would really like to do? And then, how can people help you? What can people do to to get involved and to help with your ministry? Yeah. First of all, um, you mentioned my testimony, and I thank God that people get the testimony and that they make it known unto others and. Uh, I know people even at the, you know, at the checkout counter at the supermarket will hand the testimony to people, and it's very easy to get it. There's a ministry called Chapel Library, and they make it available free of charge, so you can give them a donation if you like. And the testimony is in English, it's in Polish, it's in Italian, it's in French, um, and... um, some other languages I can't remember at the moment, but in the major uh, European languages, um, the uh, testimony is. And uh, you can just phone uh, during Eastern time a telephone number for Chapel Library. It's 
8504386666. That's 8504386666. And ask for Richard Bennett's testimony. It's called From Tradition to Truth, A Priest's Story. Uh, what I am involved in it mostly at the moment, and there's tremendous interest in it, is what is behind, what is the motivation of the um, Pope's visit to Rome, from, from Rome to the UK, uh, England, in, um, in the middle of September. The Pope is visiting Scotland, on the 450th anniversary of the Reformation to celebrate the Reformation, so they say. And then he's going to London and he's going to address both houses uh, of government, um, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. He's going to beatify uh, John Henry Newman, who was the great... uh, one who apostatized from the faith of Anglicanism when it was genuine Anglicanism in the in his in his own day and became a Roman Catholic and even became a cardinal. He's going to canonize him, make him higher up on the ladder of becoming a Catholic saint, and he is um, going to address many others there in London. Uh, the whole way in which the whole thing has been put together is frightening because it's trying to reverse what had begun under Henry VIII at the time of the Reformation. Not that Henry VIII was saved, but that he broke from the authority of Rome for his own political motives. And afterwards, because of Thomas Cranmer and others, there was true biblical faith proclaimed and it was enunciated in what's called the 39 Articles. It's trying to reverse what history had solidly brought to pass in England. And there are societies and groups working behind the scenes for this papal visit. And it is frightening that very few people are aware. I'd like to um, put people over to our webpage where it is our main article um, uh, at the moment where the the, um, the papacy is trying to bring back England under the authority of Rome to, to reenact uh, Romanism as the main uh, religion. Uh, in, in, sorry, uh, the papal Rome is trying to bring the UK back under its authority. So uh, I'm trying to do work on that, and if anybody can help on that line, of investigation of what they know, just email me the webpage we've given, and uh, it would be wonderful to get more um, insights on just what is happening there. Uh, my main focus, however, is on individual Catholics, and my greatest joy is more and more people as their eyes are open. I'd love to hear from personally from Catholic people. That is the joy because I know what it is to search as a Catholic. I was, you know, 48 years a Catholic altogether. I was uh, 14 years after the accident that you mentioned, Chris, searching the scriptures, and nobody ever said anything to me in all those days. Um, I remember putting my name in the collection basket in a Baptist church once. I remember a pastor asking me to come 
and uh, have lunch with him afterwards, but nobody ever said anything to me, confronted me, or said anything to me about the gospel, or who really saves the person of Jesus Christ and not any church. It was, it was, it was a real difficult journey, and when I see Catholics having their minds opened by God and understanding the grace of God, it is my greatest joy. And while I do different projects, like the one at the moment trying to critique the papal visit in September of the Pope to the UK, my heart is to hear from Catholic people. And my heart is to know people who are saved. I uh, I said I've put together a book of 50 former priests, but it goes on and on. There's other priests, and I hear from them, and other nuns, and other people who were, uh, you know, Christian brothers or some and some of the orders of the Catholic Church. And it is wonderful to hear, because that is the work of God, and you just stand back and praise God when individual Catholics are saved. And it is, it is a great joy to me to to see many Latinos. Um, uh, I speak Spanish, and it's, uh, I have three DVDs speaking on Spanish, and they were to relapse. We, we had trouble with YouTube. Lord willing, we'd have that resolved, but I had three videos up on the web to speaking in Spanish, and it's, it's, it's just wonderful to see Latinos coming to the Lord from different nations of the world, and I've been to Mexico, I've been to Peru twice, and it's it just did, and I've been, I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've been to other, other Catholic uh, Latino nations, and it's just wonderful to see people come to the Lord. I've been to Slovakia last year. I've met with some, so, some Slovakians. I've been to Slovakia actually in the year uh, 2000, and I've been to Poland, and it is just wonderful to see people in these nations come to the Lord. So that is my heart cry, and thank you for asking me, Chris. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been really wonderful having you here, and I hope that uh, you will come back anytime that you need uh, anything or want to get something out there. Uh, please feel free to to come on the show and tell people about it. Thank you, Mr. Uh, thank you, Richard, for being and with if us. Somebody, if somebody wants to be on our mailing list, we send out a newsletter about four times a year. Just email us on the web page, and uh, my physical address is PO Box One Nine. Dell Valley, that's two words, D-E-L-V-A-L-L-E, Texas, 78617. Um, so if anybody wants, they can um, get on our, our mailing list. That is the physical letter. Or if you want to, if you want to um, get it electronically, you know, by email, just go to the foot of our webpage, and it tells you how to put in your email address, and you will automatically get it then every time it's sent out. It has been wonderful talking to you, Chris, and wonderful talking to you, Catholic person listening. May God be glorified, and may many souls be saved to the glory and praise of His grace. Amen. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye.